Claudius was a curious emperor. First, he was often ridiculed by both his family members, even members of the Senate. And while he wasn't as cruel as Caligula was, he simply did not show enough deference to the nobility. But Claudius just carried on as he wished, did what he wanted, and ended up creating a sustainable power base with the common people and some of his closest non-senatorial advisors, even former slaves. He won broad popularity by securing the Roman food supply and enthusiastically supporting the growing entertainment scene in the city of Rome. Gladiator battles, horse racing, theatrical performances, and the like. But the Senate would always remain hostile as long as Claudius was alive. So how could one emperor be on the one hand so beloved by the common people and yet so hated by members of his own Senate? We'll discuss these things and more on this episode of the Pax Romana podcast. Episode 15, The Curious Reign of Claudius. A quick announcement before we begin. I was recently interviewed on the Ancient Heroes podcast, which you can look up just by searching for Ancient Heroes podcast in any podcast app. Ancient Heroes is a podcast which interviews leading historians about the work that they're doing. We talked mostly about my new book, Pox Romana, The Plague That Shook the Roman World. That's P-O-X, Pox Romana. We talked a little bit about the COVID-19 pandemic as well and how I got interested in ancient history and became a professor. And I encourage you to go listen to that interview and feel free to check out the podcast as well. All right, with that, let's get started with today's episode. Even before Claudius added the island of Great Britain to the empire, it was already massive, spanning from the Atlantic all the way to the Black Sea. It ran the entire coastline of the Mediterranean and several hundred miles inland. But it had been some time since a Roman leader had added so much territory to the dominion of Rome, probably going back to Julius Caesar. So Claudius's British invasion was a smashing success. Here was an island that even Julius Caesar couldn't capture, and yet Claudius had won it, or at least appeared to have done, in just a few short years. As I mentioned last time, subsequent decades would show that in fact Britain was far from subdued. But the conquest seemed to get people wondering, who was this curious emperor? People like Claudius, with violent stutters and shaking bodies, were mocked. They weren't made emperor, ever. And even though Claudius held ultimate power, he was still an object of ridicule just behind his back. We know that the Senate continued to make fun of Claudius because as soon as he died, they began to openly proclaim what a fool they thought he was. One of the best examples of this comes from the senator Seneca. It was becoming established practice to divinize Roman emperors after they died, just like Julius Caesar, just like Augustus. That what happened to a Roman emperor was that his soul ascended to heaven and he became numbered among the gods. This was called apotheosis. But when Claudius died, Seneca would write a satire, but instead of calling it the 
divinization or even the glorification of Claudius. He actually called it in Latin the gordification of Claudius. Literally, the translation of the title of this work is something like the pumpkinification of Claudius. And what happens in this story is that Claudius dies and he goes into the realm of the gods where he meets all of the various deities assembled, including past emperors like Augustus. And Seneca has Augustus say the following to the assembly of gods as Claudius stands before them, quote, is this the man you now want to make a god? Look at his body. It was born into the world when the gods were angry. Should he even be able to say three words in quick succession? If he could, he'd even have me for a slave. Who is going to worship a man like this as a god? Who would believe in him? If you create such gods, then no one will believe that you are divine. That's the apocalocentosis of Seneca. In this play, the gods end up rejecting the deceased Claudius's bid for godhood and instead sentence him to Hades, the underworld. And there he is punished in a way that senators would have loved. He's forced to attempt to roll dice. And the Romans would play dice games by putting the dice in a cup or a box and then rolling it out onto a table. But Claudius's box has a giant hole in it. And so every time he tries to roll, the dice fall out. He has to pick them up off the ground and start again. He's eternally stuck, never actually being able to play the game. This is a fitting punishment for Claudius because evidently he loved to gamble. Why did Seneca critique Claudius like this? Why was he so hated by senators like Seneca? Well, I think there are two main reasons. First, Seneca was a close associate of the emperor Nero. Nero was the successor to Claudius, and Nero did not care much for Claudius. Seneca probably held the same view as many senators during Claudius's reign. They thought this emperor was unworthy. Claudius was disabled, for one thing. He also supposedly could be cruel and even murderous. And he had a habit of courting popular support instead of the support of the Senate by enthusiastically participating in the pastimes of commoners, of the mob in the city of Rome. Claudius loved to gamble, like I said. He also attended chariot races and games and while Roman elites were supposed to tolerate such diversions, they might show up and sit in special sections of the theater so that everybody could see them publicly, they weren't supposed to actually become slavish fans of actors and individual gladiators or particular chariot teams. That was for the common people. And it seemed as though Claudius was actively degrading the decorum of the aristocracy from which he came, and of course, the office of emperor itself. But Claudius evidently didn't really care much about what the Senate thought of him, and besides, the way that he behaved in public earned him widespread approval from Rome's masses. So the Senate, even some members of Claudius's family, thought that he was an abomination. But to the people, he was at first probably a curiosity. And they initially came out in droves to see this strange new emperor. And Claudius's public appearances did draw huge crowds. 
and he rewarded the population for coming to see him. He regularly gave out money to the common people, and he held grand spectacles for their enjoyment and his, of course. But he didn't stop there. Claudius renovated the entertainment venues of Rome, including the famous Circus Maximus. This is a racetrack at the very heart of Rome. It could hold over 150,000 spectators. Claudius put fine marbles and gilded gold in the circus. He built an embankment to prevent flooding. He really improved that place. And it's because Claudius loved to go to the circus and he would work the crowds. We have accounts from the period which relate how Claudius would tell off-color jokes to throngs of spectators for laughs. After gladiatorial battles, he'd lead the people in chants, counting off on his hand the number of gold coins that he was going to pay out to the winner. You can imagine him just smiling with glee as the people would chant with him. This was a man who had been shunned and abused by his family, but apparently the people loved him. And I think Claudius, in some ways, genuinely loved them in return. Because in addition to beautifying the entertainment venues and supporting the various diversions that occupied the common people, Claudius actually spent massive amounts of his own money on meaningful infrastructural improvements in the city of Rome. Claudius, for example, funded the construction of two aqueducts that brought millions, and I mean that, millions of gallons of fresh water into the city of Rome every day. Not every month or every year, but every day. This was a massive amount of water that Claudius helped bring into the city. And in addition to providing drink, he provided food to the population as well. It was already the case before Claudius that hundreds of thousands of Romans depended upon the state to pass out free grain. But as you've already seen throughout the Pax Romana, the supply of grain was often erratic. There were weather problems, distribution problems, wars. So the people didn't always get their grain as they had hoped. The last emperor, if you remember Caligula, even starved people on purpose. He did this just to be cruel. But Claudius seemed to see it as part of his imperial duty to secure a more reliable food supply to the city of Rome. And to do this, he had to solve a basic logistical problem that nobody before him had figured out how to fix. Some of the grain ships that brought grain from Sicily and North Africa and Egypt to Rome were far too large to be unloaded near the city of Rome. Instead, they had to be offloaded way down in the Bay of Naples. And it was only from there that the grain was then tediously reloaded on either smaller ships, which would then sail up the coastline and then eventually up the Tiber River into Rome, or they could be loaded onto carts and then taken almost 100 miles overland on a trip that would take weeks and cost a lot of money. Grain would be delayed. Obviously, there's more chance for accidents to happen as it's being unloaded and then reloaded and then unloaded again. So if these ships could somehow get much closer to Rome before being offloaded, it would solve a bunch of logistical problems. But the water was too shallow. The coastline didn't quite work. 
Even Julius Caesar at one point planned to build a harbor right near the mouth of the Tiber, but even he couldn't do it. But just like with the invasion of Britain, where Claudius explicitly improved upon what Julius Caesar could not do, he did the same thing with the grain supply, taking on a problem that Julius Caesar had failed in and creating a success story for his regime. Claudius hired the best architects, engineers, and workers that he could find, and then he put lots of money down to reshape the coastline where the Tiber entered the sea. He put in a hexagonal port, which still survives, by the way, to this day. Now, it's not a port because the water levels have actually receded almost two miles off the coast at this point. So what survives is a hexagonal lake near the city of Ostia. Claudius also set up a man-made island near this port on which was situated a tall lighthouse that would guide the large ships into the bay even when weather was not so great. At this point then, after unloading the ships, it was just a short river trip up to Rome. The port became so well used that Claudius built roads directly from the port to the city of Rome. And by the way, not just a single road. He actually built two roads, one for traffic going to Rome and one for traffic going from Rome. This is the first time in human history that we get what the British call a dual carriageway, two one-way roads that are divided by a median. First time in history. And Claudius's beneficence to the common people even extended to the very lowest of the population. And by that, I'm talking about slaves. In the middle of the Tiber River was a small island. And in Claudius's day, that island was dominated by a centuries-old temple to the healing god, Asclepius. This was a temple where people brought their sick and their dying. And for masters of slaves that had become elderly or unwell, such that they couldn't complete their work, it was a good place to just dump them and leave them abandoned to die. It was obviously a cruel practice, and no doubt the bodies of these slaves began to stack up. So Claudius enacted a law. Any slave abandoned at the temple of Asclepius would be automatically set free. That is, assuming they recovered from the condition that got them there in the first place. But what about the slaves that didn't recover? Well, part of Claudius's law was the unprecedented stipulation that those slaves that died after being abandoned at the temple of Asclepius would be considered victims of murder and their masters would be charged with a capital crime. So Claudius is solving a practical problem here. But I actually think this second part of the law, the charge of murder for masters of slaves, who die in such abandonment, this suggests to me that Claudius saw these slaves as human beings. And this is something that many Romans just simply did not do. The Romans thought of slaves as vocale instrumenti. And that's translated roughly as speaking tools. That is, slaves may have looked and acted and spoke like human beings, but they were in fact property. They were tools to accomplish work. They weren't really human beings. And I'm not pretending that Claudius was against Roman slavery. He definitely wasn't. But he does seem to have had 
some degree of compassion, maybe even empathy for the slaves that were abandoned. These were people that were neglected by those entrusted to care for them. In some ways, Claudius was like this too, because he was once an outcast, even among his own family members. But despite all these ways in which Claudius obtained popularity with the common people of Rome, the way that he courted their approval made elites despise him. And surviving sources from the reign of Claudius almost uniformly describe the emperor in negative terms. And some of these accounts are openly prejudiced, obviously, against Claudius for his disabilities. But the consistencies in some of the details in these accounts do suggest that Claudius could be capricious and even cruel at times. So, for example, he executed some senators who participated in the assassination of Caligula's and his family members. Other senators Claudius prosecuted for corruption or extortion after they served as governors in Rome's far-flung provinces. He also kicked numerous senators out of the Senate itself, claiming that their wealth had dropped below the minimum level necessary to stay in the Senate. So during the reign of Claudius, membership in the Senate seems to have declined, and it was up to him to find replacements. Now, he had a plan for doing this, but even this earned him the hatred of Rome's elites. Claudius decided to allow provincials from Gaul. These were people who had only been conquered by Julius Caesar less than a hundred years before. He allowed some of these Gallic people to serve in the Senate alongside senators whose families had served in the Roman Senate for more than half a millennium and could even trace their ancestry back to when Rome had kings. This was truly a major insult. But the Senate were like elites in just about any society. They had no real sense whatsoever of the opinions and motivations that drove the general population. They were just too out of touch. And so they just assumed that because they hated Claudius, everybody else probably did too. Augustus had established the norm that emperors were meant to involve the Senate in their decisions and to take senatorial advice seriously and to find ways of honoring members of the Senate. But Claudius owed his position not to the Senate, but to the Praetorian Guard. And the Senate really only went along with that appointment because the guy with swords were backing Claudius. But Claudius, of course, knew that he was not going to get much help from the Senate. And so instead, he turned to members of his own household. These include former slaves, members of his family that happened to survive the purge when Caligula was assassinated, and also several women. In elevating members of his own household over senators, Claudius was in effect establishing something like a royal court. Of course, nobody in Rome would admit that that's what was happening. They didn't want to actually call the emperor a monarch, even if the illusion that the Republic was still alive was obviously no longer believed by anybody. The Romans were by no means ready yet to admit that the Principate was in many ways a monarchy. Now, in Claudius's court, two women were especially important. The first was his wife, Messalina. She was actually distantly related to Claudius. And this is, of course, one of many imperial marriages between family members. 
Messalina was Claudius's third wife, and she had married him before he unexpectedly became emperor. So she was thrust into power quite suddenly, and she handled it very badly. She was publicly and prominently adulterous, bringing shame upon Claudius, her husband. Historians are still trying to work out why exactly she was like this. And sure, the ancient sources are probably exaggerating some of her worst affairs and various exploits, but there are a lot of details in the accounts of Messalina's actions as the wife of the emperor that seem to line up. There evidently is some truth to the idea that she was as promiscuous as she was portrayed. Now, Messalina's affairs were widely known, even to Claudius, but she remained alive and married to him for quite some time. Some historians believe that Claudius may have done this on purpose, that he was playing some kind of 4D chess, that by relying on such obviously odious characters that attacks against his decisions and maybe even some of his murders would be laid at the feet of people like his freedmen and his wife rather than directly connected to him. I don't know whether that theory is true, but it is one way you can explain why it is that Claudius stays married to this woman for so long. But there was another woman as well, a woman who would become a central figure in Claudius's regime. And unlike Messalina, she handled power very well. She was far more clever than even Claudius. This woman was Agrippina the Younger. She was the last surviving sibling of Caligula. Her brother had exiled her for plotting against his life. But Claudius, when he became emperor, invited her back into the city of Rome. This woman was Claudius's niece, and she was a phenomenal political strategist. And as Claudius would only discover right before he was poisoned, Agrippina would do just about anything for power. But first, she had to usurp Claudius's current wife and the leading woman in Rome, Messalina. How did she do it? Find out on the next episode of the Pax Romana podcast. Thanks for listening to the Pax Romana podcast. For more information, including a list of primary sources and further reading, check the show notes. Music by Red Productions and Exocore. Follow Dr. Colin Elliott on X at ProfCPE or email colin at paxromanapodcast.com. Listen to more episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or just about anywhere podcasts are available. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Pax Romana Podcast. <laughs>